Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm David Gottlieb. The resurgent interest in Yiddish as a language, as a culture, as a realm of academic study has yielded numerous compelling works of scholarship. A recent and jubilantly subversive entry into this category has been offered by Eddie Portnoy, author of Bad Rabbi and Other Strange But True Stories from the Yiddish Press, published by Stanford University Press in 2017. In this volume, Portnoy, academic advisor and exhibitions curator at the YIVO Institute for Yiddish Research, displays prodigious powers as a researcher and as an historian, archivist, and celebrant of the passionate and tumultuous world of Yiddish cultures in New York and Warsaw in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Portnoy calls this world Yiddish land, a nation unto itself in which all the high and low expressions of culture not only occur, but are carefully and colorfully relayed by Yiddish journalists, including, among others, the young Isaac Besheba Singer. Portnoy notes that nothing like Yiddish journalism had ever existed before, nor has anything like it existed since. Nothing has matched its irreverence, its immediacy, and its wry wit. Neither social media nor personal essays nor good old-fashioned print journalism seem to capture the pathos, the piety, the hilarity, the violence, and the literary brilliance of this vanished world. This Portnoy has done, not in traditional academic style with copious notes or dry prose, but with an eye for detail and a deft and humorous touch. Eddie Portnoy joins me to talk about his book, Bad Rabbi. Mr. Portnoy, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, both uh, academically and personally, and how you came to be interested in the world you call affectionately Yiddish land? Sure. Um, the way I got into Yiddish was really via my grandparents, uh, all of whom uh, spoke Yiddish. Uh, but especially my father's parents, who um, I spent an enormous amount of time with when I was a kid. And uh, very often they spoke Yiddish, and I would answer them in English. And at some point uh, during my early teenage years, I would go to my grandmother's house and follow her around with a piece of paper and a pencil and asking her what different things in the house were. And I would make little lexicons of, of words in Yiddish, writing in, in Roman characters. And uh, when I was in high school, my father bought me a uh, book called Der Yiddish Lehrer, uh, which was a little Yiddish textbook. And I taught myself to read and write uh, using this little text. And um, my uh, mother's mother was an early supporter of the Yiddish Book Center. And she used to get these little typewritten lists of books they uh, of, of duplicate books they would sell. And, and I started buying children's books uh, just to have something to read. And uh, I would, uh, it was really, it was something that I had that was just a hobby. And sometimes my, uh, I would go to friends' houses and their grandparents would be there. And I would speak a little Yiddish with their grandparents and who were always really impressed that someone my age spoke this language. And uh, when it was a hobby that I maintained all through college, uh, I was an English lit major. I didn't really do Jewish studies and it was something that, you know, I didn't really tell my friends about. I didn't think they would be interested. And when I moved to New York in the, uh, early nineties, I worked for a small publishing company that did projects on microfilm 
and uh, we got involved with a pro- with a project, Microfilm Yiddish Newspapers, from Yivo, and I had to have uh, meetings with people from Yivo, which I didn't hadn't heard of. Uh, my grandparents weren't academics; they didn't they had no familiarity with Yivo. They were you know just regular you know tog tag l'chayidin or you know everyday Jews, as 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 you'd say. And uh, so I had to have this meeting with uh, the, li- the chief librarian of YIVO, uh, his name is Zachary Baker, uh, and we just to talk about the project. And I happened to tell him at this meeting that I had this long-standing interest in Yiddish that I taught myself to read and write, and you know it had been a little, sort of a hobby of long-standing. And he said, "Well, you know, you you might be interested in in taking YIVO's uh, summer Yiddish program at Columbia. It's no longer at Columbia, but it, it, it was at the time." And I looked into it. I wound up taking a leave of absence from work, and I took this the Evo summer program, and I was completely hooked. I enrolled in graduate school the following fall, and uh, the rest is kind of history. I I always tell people that I I turned a fun hobby into a low paying career. <laughs> and um, what led you then uh, to writing this book? I understand that your dissertation was on Yiddish cartoons. Is that correct? So you must have spent a lot of time looking at, at microfilm of, of Yiddish papers. Right. That, that's, that's exactly right. So my, my dissertation was on cartoons of the Yiddish press, and that required me to uh, look extensively at, at Yiddish newspapers. I also had a side job uh, working for the Forward, uh, doing a column called uh, Forward Looking Back, uh, which is really an unsigned column, uh, but it was uh, snippets from the Yiddish paper, from the Yiddish forwards, uh from 175 and 50 years previous, and I that required me to you know read the papers even more extensively. So I I, I was constantly in front of the microfilm reader, uh, you know, looking at, at Yiddish newspapers from mostly Warsaw, New York, uh, and. What happened was through the work at, uh, for the forward or the, for the forward, um, and also through my dissertation work, I began discovering really the riches of Yiddish journalism. I, you know, I began finding stories that were really unlike anything I had read anywhere else, and it was something that I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever done microfilm research, but it's it's not the most it's not the most engaging thing. No, it's 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 numbing and it can be kind of hypnotizing too. You know, you can fall into a trance and have wound through an entire role. Right, right. Plus, plus, if you're doing if you're reading microfilm in Yiddish, you're you're scrolling right to left, and I'm and you're and you're reading left to right, and so it's kind of like it's it's kind of like reading upstream. It's uh, it, it, it can become sort of visually exhausting, um, but I, I was so amazed and engaged by these stories I was finding, I, I would spend, you know, six, seven hours in front of microfilm readers just, you know, looking for these stories. And, and you know, really one of the odd things is, and, and I described this briefly in my book, the cartoons in the Warsaw Yiddish papers only appeared in the Friday editions. And so I would, I only needed to find cartoons for the, for the dissertation project. And so I would scroll from Friday to Friday. I would try to skip everything between the, between Fridays because I didn't need to look at it because I knew cartoons weren't there. So, uh, one time I, I scrolled and I landed a bit early, uh, and there was a headline in front of me. I landed on a Thursday and 
the headline in front of me was uh, Two Wives Blazing Punches and the Cops. And I thought, okay, that sounds like an interesting headline. I, I'll, I'll, I'll read this short article. So it turned out to be about uh, a Hasidic guy in Warsaw who uh, had fallen in love with his wife's best friend uh, and married her, setting her up outside of town in her own apartment. And he would shuttle between the two women telling the first wife he was away on business when he was visiting the second wife. The neighbors of the first wife figured out what was going on. They told his brother, who was uh, an in-law to a major Hasidic Rebbe, and um, uh, the brother arranged for uh, a hearing at the rabbinical court. And he literally dragged his, his brother there uh, and waiting were a panel of three rabbis, both wives, and about 30 members of the first wife's family. The rabbis ruled that uh, he had to divorce both women, which they did on the spot. When the divorce was finalized, the brother ran over to him, punched him in the face, the 30 members of the first wife's family jumped on the second wife and began to beat her. The rabbis ran out and called the police who came and arrested everyone. So I read this story and I'm sitting in front of this microphone reader and I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's an incredible story. You know, that, <laughs> it is. Yes, and and I believe the book. story is in your book, uh, isn't it? Isn't and, it? Mm. you know, not only is it an amazing story, but it's really unlike um, – the Jews I've been taught about in graduate school or in life. I've never heard of, I've, I've never heard of stories like this. I've never read stories like this. It's, you know, this is total, you know, it's like Yiddish pandemonium there. Are, and so what I did was from that point on, instead of flipping from Friday to Friday, as I'd been doing, just looking for cartoons, I began scrolling slowly through the microfilms, scanning for headlines, uh, you know, looking for you know, sort of juicy stories that I, I would just make photocopies of and, and, you know, put aside and save for later. And the later was, you know, this book. Uh, you know, so th this I tend to call the, this book my dissertation detritus. It's 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 the stuff that I found you know during my research that I I thought would come in handy later on, or I was just you know kind of intrigued by it. I didn't really know what I was going to do with it, um, but it it you know the stories are really compelling and they reveal a kind of um, you know they reveal aspects of of Yiddish speaking Jews that you know people really don't expect they they don't anticipate uh Jews like this i th i think there's a lot of nostalgia about uh yiddish speakers and you know what i found really doesn't fit into that framework i was going to ask you about that because it does seem that um uh the considerable amount of of studies that have been done on yiddish culture have really not generally um explored what you might call the seamy underbelly uh, of the world which um is teeming, it seems, with rich, colorful characters, obviously a great deal of pain and pathos as well, but but a, a certain kind of uh, wonderful communal feeling, um, passionate individuals, uh, uh, scenes that seem to make, for example, the Three Stooges make a lot more sense. I mean, it seems like in a lot of the stories that you tell, violence was a principal form of communication, Really, um, why do you think uh, so? You, and you said that uh, you hadn't really encountered much like this in your study. Why do you think that is, and what is it about Yiddish culture that that makes these stories so possible and so numerous? 
Right. Okay. So, um, you know, one of the significant aspects of Yiddish studies is uh, Yiddishists and people who love Yiddish have long been trying to elevate the language uh, because it was denigrated for so long by so many people as a jargon, as as something that, you know, wasn't capable of transmitting intelligent thought. Uh, you know, Yiddish, you know, even, even people who spoke Yiddish, you know, would, would claim it wasn't a language. Um, so there's there's been a really concerted effort over a long period of time to elevate the language and give it, you know, greater you know, sort of intellectual and artistic and cultural status, which it does, which it does have. Uh, you know, Yiddish is a language of it. You know, it, it has its high literary uh, moments. It has, you know, amazing expressionist poetry. There's, you know, everything. That's one of the things I'm, I try to convey in, in in the introduction is that is that you know everything existed in Yiddish from high to low and everything in between. And so, what became obscured was. Uh, the really low levels of Yiddish culture, uh, and that's what I, I try to evoke. I, that's you know what I really found in uh, in in this newspaper reporting, and you know you you note the violence and and in fact the Three Stooges. And what's funny is if you if you watch the Three Stooges, especially from the 1930s, there are a lot of Yiddish. There, there's a lot of Yiddish in that in those episodes. Um, you know, you know, they were all they all of them were were the children of uh, of Yiddish speaking immigrants, and so uh, you know there there are a lot of there are a lot of Yiddish moments in the Three Stooges as well. Um, but uh, you know, the the Jews uh, as a, a societal underclass behave the way that um, all societal underclasses behave. They live hunched by jowl, and uh, violence breaks out. Uh, on a hair trigger, it you know people pushing and shoving and slapping uh, were all parts of social discourse. Uh, this is you know this is not genteel middle class and above uh, discourse. This is um, you know this is the working class. You paint that especially uh, beautifully, really, when you talk about and I hope I'm pronouncing this right because a Yiddishist I'm not. Uh, Krochmalna Street, which seemed to be a whole world unto itself. Can you talk about where that was and what distinguished uh, that place from other places in Yiddish Warsaw? Right. So Krachmalna Street was, and in fact, Isaac Besheva Singer writes pretty extensively about Krachmalna Street because he lived on it. Uh, and it was a street in sort of the heart of Jewish Warsaw. And it was one of the poorest street that had all, all kinds of people on it, living on it, um, you know, working poor, uh, but also, you know, criminals and prostitutes and, you know, really sort of a, a panoply of, uh, of, of the Jewish poor. And there was, in fact, a, um, a certain stretch of the street uh, that was called, um, uh, uh, called uh, Dos Pletzl, uh, or which in Yiddish translates as the little place. Uh, and it was, I believe, 9 through 11. The address is 9 through 11 Krochmalna Street. And what's interesting is Besheva Singer lived across the street at number 10. And these, these two buildings were sort of a center of, uh, of criminality. And, um, 
it they were they provide they provided for Jewish journalists this kind of very rich um, tapestry of you know Yiddish speaking Jews that they could mine for all kinds of stories and they did and so um, people like Besheva Singer uh, he uses Krachmalna Street in his in his especially in his book um, in my father's court uh, which is sort of a it's a, it's really a biogra- an autobiography um, of him growing up on the street, and you get to see the street through through his eyes as a child. Uh, but it was this incredibly, you know, it was this place where where you know, sort of Jewish urban folk culture was uh, was very rich, and uh, everyone knew it. And it was in uh, Yiddish journalists. You know, love to report from there. They, there were, you know, there was always something going on. There was always a story to report from on on, on Krachmalna Street. I mean, there are other areas that get reported on in similar ways, but Krachmalna became really a center and and a, and a, and a well known uh, place for the for this kind of activity. What led uh, to the sort of explosion of Yiddish journalism? Was it? You know, the cheap availability of printing technology, was it the relaxation of restrictions uh, on Yiddish language publications? Uh, in the case of New York, was it, you know, the upsurge in immigration? Did all, did all these things fig- figure in or what were, what were the main factors uh, that led to the profusion of, of reporting on day-to-day Yiddish life? Right. Well, it was all of those things. And uh, the the and it happens differently in different places. So in the United States, uh, you have this uh, very large wave of, of immigration that takes place uh, in the beginning of the 1880s, uh, where between 1881 and 1924, it's estimated that about two million Jews, uh, almost all of them Yiddish speaking, came to the United States from Eastern Europe. Uh, at the time, the only form of mass media is the press. So newspapers uh, completely dominate. Uh, and this is, you know, this is where people get all of their information from. In Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe, it was slightly different because up until, um, well, up until really 1905, uh, the Russian government maintains a real stranglehold on, on newspapers. They do permit some of them, uh, but uh, there's no real profusion like there is in the United States until after 1905. In, in and at that point, Warsaw becomes the center of uh, of, of Jewish culture. Uh, previous to that. Uh, there had been Jewish, I'm sorry, Yiddish and Hebrew newspapers allowed in places like St. Petersburg and a bit earlier in Odessa. Uh, the reason being was that um, St. Petersburg as the capital was uh, the center of culture and they, because they wanted to censor and keep an eye on uh, Yiddish newspapers and Hebrew newspapers as well, this is why they um, allowed permission to the, for them to appear in St. Petersburg where there were very few Jews and in fact, um, most Jews were not even permitted to live. Uh, but after 1905, after the failed Russian Revolution of 1905, Warsaw really becomes the de facto center of Jewish culture, and you have a profusion of newspapers there. And by um, the time of independent Poland in the 1920s, uh, you know you get uh, you know four, three to four daily newspapers uh, in Yiddish, 
And in New York, you get even more because the economy is better. Uh, so you, you have up to five daily newspapers in New York in Yiddish. Uh, and this is not, you know, without mentioning the fact that in, in Poland, for example, you have, um, uh, you know, lots of provincial newspapers, you know, newspapers in smaller, in, in smaller cities and even smaller towns. So you'll have newspapers in Lodz and, and, and Krakow and in Pinsk and in all kinds of other places. Uh, in the United States, you have Yiddish newspapers, uh, you know, everywhere there are, you know, significant populations of Yiddish speaking Jews. Uh, you know, whether it be Detroit or Chicago or even Milwaukee, Los Angeles, uh, you know, you, you, you know, wherever, because you, print media is the only form of mass media, this is what's, uh, you know, this is what becomes prevalent. And in, and in Warsaw, we're talking about, at its height, the, the Yiddish speaking community was about a third of the city in terms of population, wasn't it? Right. It was, you know, something like 25 25% to a third of the city. Uh, in New York City in the 1920s, about a quarter of the population was was Jewish, um, you know, most of them Yiddish-speaking. Uh, so these these papers and the neighborhoods that, you know, that, that were, you know, heavily Jewish were, you know, were so Yiddish-infused uh, that in a lot of cases you had uh, – Gentiles who spoke Yiddish because they had so many dealings with uh, Yiddish-speaking Jews that they learned Yiddish because that's how they needed, you know, that's what they needed to communicate. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't read it, but they they certainly spoke it. You note, I think, in the introduction to the book that yours isn't a traditional academic work, and I mentioned this a little bit uh, in the introduction. What led you to writing the book in the particular way that you did with? few footnotes, but an extensive bibliography and uh, with stories that are carefully researched, but also really sort of lovingly translated. How, why, uh, why did you write the book the way that you did? Uh, I really wrote the book for uh, trade publication, but uh, it, no trade publisher wanted it. And, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think they really understood what it was supposed to be. Uh, or, or, or what you know, they, they didn't understand what kind of audience would read this, and uh, because I'm an academic, and uh, I was talking to friends, and it was suggested that I submit this to an academic press, and Stanford looked at it, and they were very interested in it, in part because academic presses are doing all kinds of things to get more readers, and. You know, one of the things I did by writing it the way I did, without footnotes and uh, and translating it as closely as possible to convey the the you know the sensibility of the Yiddish press, uh, was to try and uh, get a broader readership to to and and to really and to convey that very sensibility that the Yiddish press provided. Um, I mean, it's obviously it's impossible to do in English, but I, I, I did what I could. And I, and, and I hope that the, the stories are, you know, engaging and, and, and interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And what did you learn about Yiddish world, a world in which you've spent a lot of time as a researcher? How did, how did the writing of the book change your view or, uh, uh, reform or enhance your knowledge of that world? Well, it didn't. It didn't really reform my my knowledge of the world, but it it did change it because it it really 
gave me uh, a perspective that I didn't have before. I, I didn't, you know, this the sort of, you know, average workaday Jews who appear in, you know, the crime blotter of the Yiddish press, I, I, I never really considered. I, I didn't I didn't think of them as, uh, you know, as a possibility for research. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the sort of great masses of any culture exist, but it's sort of hard to put your finger on them because when you're working as a historian, what you want is a paper trail. So when, you know, when you go to choose a dissertation topic or if you go to choose a topic to write about, uh, you're going to typically people choose individuals. They'll choose you know, scholars or artists or writers um, or politicians, people who have correspondence and 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 books that they manuscripts and things that they've written that you can really sink your teeth into, uh, you know, in a scholarly way. So what I, you know, the people that I'm working on don't have that. They don't leave paper trails. You know, people. You know, these people who, you know, appear on the crime blotter or um, you know, or in these newspapers that, you know, sometimes the little articles that you, that you find in the Yiddish papers are all, that's all you'll find. You, you, you won't even, you won't even, you know, even if you look, you won't find a follow-up. Um, so, you know, it's, it's all very fleeting. Um, and the reality is, is if you, if it weren't for Yiddish journalists, um, you know, we would know nothing at all about these people. Right. And you talk you talk some about uh, about these journalists. Can you say more about who they were? Because apparently they were not, you know, just uh, hacks or scribes. They were in many cases uh, playwrights and novelists and great writers of various kinds making a living. Right. Right. So in in the world of Yiddish letters, it was very rare to be able to. Uh, it subsists just on you know writing novels or poetry alone. I mean, it's like any you know any novelist or any poet. You know, it, it, it would be it's impossible. You 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 have to have a day job, and that and that day job for many writers was working as journalists in the Yiddish press. So people like uh, Isaac Bashev Singer, his brother uh, Israel Joshua Singer, um, uh, almost every. Yiddish writer that you can think of also worked as a journalist. Uh, so as a result, there are articles in the Yiddish press that are exceptionally well written. Uh, one of the there's a chapter in my book uh, in which I translated a, a, an Israel Joshua Singer story, uh, and he has a whole, um, you know, he's he writes. A huge number of articles that appear uh, often in the forwards, but also in the in the in the Yiddish press in Poland, and uh, his prose is often beautifully rendered. Uh, and the um, the reality is, though, that that in the Yiddish press you have things that are you know beautifully written, uh, and it runs the gamut to things that are you know not particularly well written. Uh, you know, journalists are under you know they they you know work under deadlines. Uh, you know, they have to get things out quickly. Um, you know, some articles are clearly more important than others and they spend more time on them. Uh, some get edited more than others. Uh, and, you know, so for instance, in, you know, larger articles, 
you know, they'll be better written. And in the crime blotter articles, uh, which are more like little blurbs, they won't be as well as well written, but they still have a certain style uh, and a certain snarkiness that uh, that is really unlike any other press I've seen, uh, especially from that time period. Uh, it's it's really it's really sort of a unique aspect of uh, of of Yiddish uh, of Yiddish journalism. Um, there's a kind of snark and humor that that comes across in a lot of articles that uh, that you you wouldn't find elsewhere. What did the readers of the Yiddish press hunger for? In other words, what what uh, how did the publishers and writers of the Yiddish press um, feed the appetite of the readers um, in with what they really wanted? Well, you know, they did so in various ways, and, and different readers wanted different things. Uh, you know, you have politically engaged readers who, who you know, want more, you know, material on politics. Uh, you have the people who uh, are, you know, are into it for, you know, let's say material in the crime blotter and pulp novels. Uh, you have other people who, you know, who want to read um you know, high quality literature. And that's, that the, the literature aspect is also an interesting thing about the Yiddish press. Uh, it, the Yiddish press functioned very much as, um, as an important, uh, uh, vehicle for Yiddish literature. Uh, hundreds, I don't know, maybe even thousands of Yiddish stories were serialized in Yiddish newspapers, uh, really all over the world. And readers, you know, waited for their, you know, they're serialized novels. They, they would, you know, sometimes you would buy a paper just to read the stories by whatever writer you were, you were interested in. Um, you also had, a, a um, an aspect where, uh, people often read more than one newspaper a day. Uh, it's, um, you know, for instance, I mean, today I, I, you know, I can only liken this today to something like flipping through TV channels. Um, you know, you, you People often watch, you know, well, I think most people only watch, you know, will watch more than one TV channel. They'll watch, they'll flip through channels. Um, they'll go from show to show. Uh, you know, when you, uh, you know, if, if reading and if newspapers are the only form of mass media, if they're the, you know, if these things are the only thing coming out every day, you're, you're, and you have time to read, you more than likely you're going to, you're going to read more than one paper. And there was a lot of sort of trading papers, um, uh, you know, for instance, in New York, the Forwards had uh, their 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 print run uh, was something around 200. Or the, in the early 1920s, their print run was something like 220,000. Uh, but their readership was actually much larger because uh, each paper had more. You know, typically had more than one reader. You know, you would give. You know, when you finished your paper, you would give it to your neighbor. Uh, or you would give it to the person next to you in, you know, in the sweatshop you were working in. Um, that was very typical, and people traded papers and and, and read them. Um, you know, I think I don't think that people were really beholden to um, certain papers, although some certainly were for political reasons. Um, but but most, you know, most more people would read all kinds of things because that's really all there was. What is the? There are many stories in the book. Which is the story that really? stays with you the most? Ah, that's hard to say. Um, it's almost an unfair question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because the stories, I mean, I, the stories are just amazing and they, they always lead into other stories. Um, but one of the stories I like the most is the, the, um, 
the story about uh, the Miss Judea beauty pageant uh, that took place in Warsaw in 1929. And what I like about that is it it uh, it brings in almost every precinct of of Warsaw Jewry, uh, you know, from uh, the you know the ultra orthodox the Hasidim to um, Polish speaking Jews uh, to Yiddish speaking Jews to artists to, um, uh, you know, average Jews, it's really, it's like, it's an amazing, it's a, it's an amazing story. It's so, you know, it's so odd. And it does really reveal the, the cultural diversity of, of this world in a, in a, in a most, uh, amazing way. And the, and the other aspect of the book that, uh, really impressed me was how central the base din was, to the life of even Jews who were stridently secular. Can you say a little bit about that? Right. Well, you know, if you needed to get divorced, well, if you, if your marriage had gone south and you wanted to get divorced, um, you generally went to the base in, you went to the rabbinical court uh, because in order to get remarried, uh, especially for women, uh, you needed a get. You needed a, a Jewish writ of divorce, uh, and so that and, and so that's why people went there. It was also the cheapest place to get a divorce. Um, sometimes you could go to um, what were uh, a person who who you'd call uh, a vinklerov or a corner rabbi, uh, which is sort of like the rabbi down the street who who could give you who could also give you a, a, a get. Um, but typically, you know, people were aware of the uh, of of the rabbinical divorce or rabbinical court, and that's where they they knew that it had certain hours, and that you could show up there any time uh, and get an instant divorce if you needed it. Uh, you know, it was something that was available, so that so that's why people went there. Uh, so, what will you do next? Uh, that's a good question. I um, I, mean, I do have a day job. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working, uh, I'm working arduously at YIVO. Uh but uh, you know, there's been talk of possibly doing a, a second volume of, of material like this. Um, I do have enough material. There's, it's, it's, it's very plentiful. Um, and you know, to be honest, it's a lot of fun to work with. So uh, that's something that I may consider doing. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today about this uh, rich and wonderful tapestry of Yiddish culture. I've been speaking today with Eddie Portnoy, the author of Bad Rabbi and Other Strange But True Stories from the Yiddish Press, published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Eddie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. 